All set. Logistically, uh, I'll take a break in the morning, in the afternoon, about 20 minutes. We'll also take a lunch break for an hour. I'll end very close to on time, I believe at 5 o'clock. Um, and let's see, if you want to get up otherwise, you know, before breaks, feel very free to do that. You know, just mindful of people around you. It's fine to drink in here and, you know, eat in here over lunch. Uh, take care of yourself. I was reflecting while we were sitting that if we get keyed up, you know, we start feeling irritable or anxious or uncertain or uneasy, it's harder to keep the heart open to others. And we start getting primed in terms of the nervous system toward reactivity. So, you know, first uh, of all, you know, take care of yourself. Help yourself really be in a good place as best you can. Uh, feel free to move around for the sight line if you want to lie down if your back hurts. Uh, that's okay. Um, you know, just be good to yourself. And that'll help you be good to others as well. Okay. So topics. Um, cover a lot of ground today. Uh, I'm going to start with some sort of overall framing material, as you can see over here. And then fairly quickly, we're going to start moving into some practices. We'll start with a practice this morning, fairly soon, on self-compassion. And then we'll move into the territory of empathy, loving-kindness, and then get down into the nitty-gritty, where I'm really interested to go. It's fairly easy, or straightforward at least, to be warm or kind or caring toward others. It's fairly straightforward. It's also fairly straightforward to be assertive and strong and, you know, speaking up, you know, speaking your mind and so on. To put those two together, the intersection of those two circles, eh, that's a little bit more of a challenge. So I look forward to getting into that territory, including, um, you know, nightmare scenarios. As Jean-Paul Sartre said a long time ago, hell is other people. So we're gonna, <laughs> I want to get into the realness of all this sort of stuff. Um, and also, though, before I, I go on, I want to make what is, for me at least, an important comment. Uh, I was, uh, you may know the Zen saying, nothing left out. In other words, using everything for practice. And I was in a teacher training program a while ago, and it, early on in that program, I realized with a lot of pain that any time we speak, any time we even think or we relate to others, we're inherently leaving things out. Our view is partial. So here I am, uh, white, male, heterosexual, middle class, professional, etc., 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 American, and so forth. I'm inherently going to leave perspectives out. Here we are talking about relationships, and by definition, inherently, poignantly, um, I can't help but exclude certain things, certain perspectives, uh, naming certain groups. Can't do it. And that filled me with a lot of pain in that uh, teacher training program until I realized that I could include that I was going to leave people out. You know the words, right? You know. Just kind of follow that. So I just want to acknowledge up front that, you know, I'll come from my perspective, which is all I can do, which will inherently leave some other perspectives out, some other groups out, some other voices out. So one, I invite other voices to speak up here uh, and help us be more diverse, more inclusive, more expansive. And um, also I invite you to um, kind of join me in a certain compassion for uh, you know, the imperfections of things. Uh, the third Zen patriarch, uh, the one who had the famous kind of opening line, 
The great way, in other words, the way of awakening, the great way is easy for one with no preferences. Right? You know, that's the opening uh, to this really, really wonderful teaching. And a little further on he says, enlightenment is uh, releasing anxiety about imperfection. Like, wow, that's a very deep comment for someone like the Third Zen Patriarch to say, enlightenment is no anxiety about imperfection. You know, he's speaking to the inherent imperfectibility in some sense of that word, of life, and, you know, coming to terms with all that. So, you know, there's a kind of inherent imperfection or imperfectibility around including all views. Um, one of the things we can do is to practice with that and, and to realize that it is true and then do the best we can. Okay? Okay. So, to dive in, here we go. So. Uh, it's interesting how Buddhism is often seen as sort of the introverted path, right? You know, don't bother me, I'm meditating. Yeah. And, um, you know, it can kind of get a bad name as well. And two, as also I should add too, the Buddhism often has the, you know, flavor of being the bummer religion. You know, if we want to call it a religion, you suffer, then you die, whatever. You know, right? And it's important to really appreciate two things, right? There is this uh, brave and, I think, clear-eyed recognition of suffering and the causes of suffering and the end of the causes of suffering. I'm moving my way through the Four Noble Truths. You probably recognize suffering, the cause of suffering, the fact, the possibility of the end of the causes of suffering, and this very effective Eightfold Path that embodies the causes of the end of the suffering and helps us increasingly manifest those in our life, all right? So in that larger context then, first the Buddha was known as the happy one. Uh, there is a place, as we'll see, for positive emotion, positive experiences as refuges, as uh, motivators, uh, as adding to uh, the fulfillment that's available to us, as the Buddha put it, the happiness visible in this present life. There's certainly a place for that. And also, very relevant to our purposes, uh, recent scholarship um, is clarifying that in terms of the Buddhism teachings, he made it quite clear that the path of love was a wholly sufficient path to awakening. You know, later on, I mean, it's said that uh, after he died, there were some sort of misunderstandings of that or, you know, some increasingly technical preoccupations with details of meditating or the nature of experiencing, and that led then some centuries later to the Mahayana, the Tibetan and kind of Chinese uh, revision, if you will, that focused more on relationships. But the Buddha himself, it's very clear, as we'll see momentarily with some quotations here, really did emphasize the fundamental importance of relatedness and using community broadly defined, relationships broadly defined, as both a support for our personal practice and a field of practice. Uh, thus, the opening section here, uh, a dharma of love. So here's a quotation. Um, it's fairly well known. I'll just read it here. And I think, David, we're recording this, right? We're doing on a roll. Great. We're rolling, as it were. Uh, we're sucking in these days the digital bits. Okay. So Ananda was the cousin of the Buddha and his primary attendant. He, uh, if you uh, read the traditional uh, teachings of the Buddha in terms of um, you know, what's called the Pali 
canon. Pali is a language of early Buddhism. Uh, very many of them start with, thus I have heard. That's a Nanda speaking. So this is the voice of, a, of the Buddha coming through the voice of Ananda to us. So Ananda approached the Buddha and said, Venerable Sir, looking at the others around, this is half of the spiritual life. Good friendship, good companionship, good comradeship. And the Buddha replied, not so, Ananda, not so. This is the entire spiritual life. When you have a good friend, a good companion, a good comrade, it is to be expected that you will develop and cultivate the Noble Eightfold Path. So you can see this central emphasis early on there on relatedness and love, as I said, as a field of practice and a support for practice. There's another quotation as well, speaking to what um, Sean had to say about generosity. Buddha says here, If people knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given. Nor would they allow the stain of niggardliness, that stinginess, not a racist comment, means stinginess, to obsess them and root in their minds. Even if it were their last morsel, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it, if there were someone to share it with. Isn't that really touching? A very close friend of mine um, named Ed uh, really reflects on this teaching often, and he asks himself, he says, you know, what did the Buddha know that led him to really, really offer generously? And, um, you know, Ed's practice in part is to try to grow inside himself what the Buddha knew so that he would be moved to be generous toward others. And then in terms of our own evolution as a species, um, you know, it's unusual for animals to be altruistic and share food with others, right? And yet, in our own background as primates, and we'll talk a little bit about the evolution of um, giving and generosity when I, when I get to that section, you know, it's through the, the biological benefits over the long course of evolution of giving and developing capacities like empathy or compassion, bonding, language, cooperative planning, altruism, etc., sharing your food with others, um, that really those forces were central forces, especially over the last 10 or 20 million years, and especially the last several million years, those were major forces, the survival benefits of the development of capacities for love, broadly defined, scientists now conclude were a primary, if not the primary driver of the evolution of the human brain, certainly over the last several million years. So when Sean talks about generosity, um, we don't need a pep talk to know what generosity feels like and to know what its benefits are like as well. So that's our context here. You know, a dharma of love. Dharma simply means reality or a description of reality, an accurate description of reality. So we're talking here about connectedness uh, and in general and in terms of our own human species, a warm-heartedness as an inherent reality, an inherent aspect of us. And then also we're exploring, you know, a useful and accurate account of that natural lovingness that rests in everyone's heart. That's what we're up to today. Okay? As well as acquiring some practical skills for that hell, which is other people.
Okay. So, segueing into a bit of a practice, if we're going to engage relationships, we need to establish our own seat. We need to establish our own sense of strength, as well as strengths broadly defined in terms of capacities, like resilience, happiness, wholesome intentions, character virtues, patience, mindfulness, um, loving kindness, and so forth. To do that, you've got to get on your own side, right? Because, you know, you may know this joke kind of from therapy world, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change, right? <laughs> and so, you know, as a longtime therapist and teacher and whatnot, it's often striking to me that I'm caring more about the suffering of the other person than they're caring about it themselves. And that's where we really have to start. It's useful to appreciate, um, you know, both kind of a top-down rationale for why it's good to get on your own side, why it's good to be a friend to yourself, and also, as we'll move into momentarily, to cultivate more of a bottom-up warm-heartedness for yourself. So, in terms of the top-down rationale, you know, the current version of this is put your own oxygen mask on first, right? But a long time ago, as the Buddha put it, if one going down into a river, swollen and swiftly flowing, is carried away by the current, how can one help others across? If we're motivated to be of benefit to others, one of the most important things we can do is to resource and stabilize ourselves over here so, so that we can then be of use um, to other people over the long marathon of life, which is not a sprint. Right? Bertrand Russell has a related quote. Um, he said, the good life as I conceive it is a happy one. Not because being good will make you happy, although sidebar, it usually does, but Russell the curmudgeon didn't want to make that point. He says, to go back to his quote, it's because happy people are good people. In other words, as much research shows, with um, some unfortunate exceptions that shall be nameless from this seat here, but anyway, most people in general, as their own cup runneth over, have more and more inclination to be generous and caring and patient, forgiving and forbearing with other people. Right? So as we resource ourselves over here, that's an expression of benevolence to beings over there. So it helps to understand that kind of rationale from the top down. It's also important to grow, as I said, a kind of warm-heartedness toward oneself from the bottom up. As Pema Chodron, you know, writes here, uh, the first, yeah, the root of Buddhism is compassion. Interesting here, too, that she's speaking to the relational, loving aspects that are at the root of this form of spiritual practice. And then she goes on to say, and the root of compassion for others is compassion for yourself. So self-compassion is a big topic these days. Um, this is a busy slide. We'll take some time with it here. Uh, Christopher Germer, Kristen Neff, Mark Leary, many other people, academics, are researching um, self-compassion. Uh, Chris Germer and Kristen Neff have created a wonderful mindful self-compassion uh, program that's really uh, flourishing worldwide. You might have some interest in that. Um, the research on self-compassion shows that it um, is essentially the wish that a being not suffer, that's what compassion is, applied to oneself. Typically with the warm-hearted feelings of 
sympathetic or friendly or tender concern that we would apply to others as an important aspect of compassion that are also applied to ourselves. So self-compassion uh, is more of a factor of self-worth than self-esteem. Self-esteem is kind of intellectual. Uh, I've known people, you may know them yourself, who could give you a long list of their good qualities and accomplishments who still feel bad about themselves. Right? That kind of heady understanding just hasn't reached down into their belly and bones. And whereas self-compassion is much more emotional and it tends to get down to the roots. Also, self-compassion uh, doesn't make us lose our edge. Uh, it buffers us against self-criticism. Self-compassion is an aspect of self-guidance. In other words, there's a place for recognizing our faults and correcting them. There's a place for seeing how we could do things more skillfully in the future. Okay, but we don't have to do that by lambasting ourselves with all that negative topspin that studies show actually wear us down and lower our performance over time. Research has shown that people who uh, bring lots of you know, angry self-criticism to bear when they've had a failure or a setback don't learn as much from that experience as people who bring a kind of healthy self-guidance and self-compassion to their failure or setback. Those people learn a lot more, right? In other words, in effect, self-criticism sets us up for vicious cycles of self-criticism, right? Self-criticism impairs our learning from our experiences, which means we're going to be more prone to self-criticism down the road. There's going to be more to criticize, in effect, down the road. Also, self-compassion makes people, uh, protects them from stress and helps them recover more quickly from painful, difficult experiences. Self-compassion is real fuel for the acquisition of greater resilience over time. Notwithstanding all these benefits, though, uh, self-compassion ain't always so easy for people to do. Many people are much kinder to others, much more compassionate to others than they are to themselves. I think the golden rule is a two-way street. We should do unto ourselves as we do unto others. So in a moment, I'd like to move into a practice here around the cultivation of self-compassion that's based on some research that shows that if we start by receiving experiences of being cared about, that tends to prime the pump for being caring ourselves. Right? It kind of warms up the attachment circuitry, the so-called social engagement system in the nervous system to receive uh, experiences of caring from others. And then uh, in the second step, in this three-step self-compassion practice we'll do, um, as you really know what it's like to be compassionate in an embodied way, and you can, quote-unquote, take in the good of that experience. You can really register it. You can internalize compassion. You can know what it feels like. Then, based on that uh, well-anchored-in-the-body attitude and feeling, in the third step of this practice we're about to do, you can apply that compassion to yourself. Okay, so that's the roadmap. You want to do a practice here? All right. So like all practices, Take care of yourself. Feel very free to ignore my suggestions. If I've moved on and you want to stay longer with something, that's okay. Uh, sometimes what happens when you do a practice is that it just kind of goes fine and you just go down the steps. Other times you hit some blocks or obstructions. And then you have a choice. Should I you know, focus in on the block and investigate it and explore it and work with it? Or should I kind of bow to it, recognize it, and then come back to the practice? That's really up to you. Generally, I think um, it's 
useful, especially in this setting, to note the block and come back to it later because here there's an opportunity to really kind of keep going with a particular sort of practice. And as we'll see, if you can sustain wholesome experiences, since in the famous saying, neurons that fire together wire together, the sustaining of that wholesome experience, that beneficial experience, whether it's feeling cared about or feeling compassionate or feeling self-compassionate, you can uh, gradually wire that experience and code that mental state into a change in neural structure or function. In other words, you've learned, in, including in the emotional sense of learning, um, you've learned to feel a bit more cared about, to feel a bit more compassionate, or to feel a bit more self-compassionate altogether. So kind of marinating in these positive experiences and sustaining them will help you weave these resources into the fabric of your brain and therefore your life. Okay? Okay. So. Let's begin with your eyes open or closed as you like. Um, in the first step, I suggest, and this practice will be about 15, 20 minutes long. In the first step, I suggest that you bring to mind one or more beings that you know care about you. It doesn't need to be a perfect relationship. In at least one slice of the pie of the relationship, you know it's true that you matter to this other person. It could be people in your life today or in your past. It could be animal companions, pets, dogs and cats, etc. It could be spiritual beings or forces, uh, spirit, whatever it is. In groups of people, you're encouraging now. You're trying to help activate, to call up a growing feeling of being cared about. I'll be quiet in a moment so you can kind of marinate in this, but I'll mention five ways to feel cared about, any one of which uh, counts, and the more the better. First, it's, uh, the first form of being cared about is to be included, a sense of belonging, like you're part of a group or a family or a relationship, maybe a team at work, could be a softball club, group of people you walk with. That's a form of being cared about. A second form of being cared about, and any one of these is good, is to feel seen, empathized with, or at least the other person is trying to understand you. Another form of being cared about is to feel appreciated or respected or that your contribution is recognized or another person is grateful to you. They, they're thanking you sincerely or that you're valued or wanted. By the way, it's natural for other feelings to arise like not feeling so cared about. You can just acknowledge those. And then as you can, bring the spotlight of your attention back to a growing feeling in your body, spreading inside you, one way or another, a feeling cared about. 
A fourth kind of feeling cared about is to feel liked. People like you. These experiences might be mild, but they still count. What's it like to feel liked? And then the fifth aspect, of course, of feeling cared about is to feel loved, cherished. So I'll be quiet here as you help yourself explore and receive with an intimacy with yourself various kinds of feeling cared about. All right, and then in the second step, having warmed things up here, bring to mind one or more beings that you care about, especially one or more beings that you have compassion for. Could be a friend, a child, a family member, perhaps people, Groups of people near at home or far away, could be other animals, life altogether. See if you can find in yourself the sincere wish that a being or beings not suffer. Suffer being a kind of traditional word, using it generally for physical or emotional discomfort ranging from mild to extreme. The stress of others, the physical pain of others, the worries of others, including about other people, the pressure that others feel, hunger, illness, loss, 
discrimination, prejudice, mistreatment, injustice. You could explore strengthening these feelings of warm-heartedness and tender concern and good wishes with a hand on your heart or a hand on your cheek. You can know that even if you can't do a darn thing about it, your good wishes are still genuine. And in some sense, they count. They count for you. They count for the other person if they know of them. Perhaps in unknown ways even, they count as well. You can also strengthen the sense of compassion, if you like, with soft thoughts in the back of the mind, like, may you not suffer. Or something more specific, like, may you not be hungry. Or may you find work. Or may you get through this divorce. Or may your chemotherapy go well. There's an awareness of the suffering of the other, but primarily what's present in the foreground of your mind is a warm-hearted, sincere feeling. May you not suffer. May things go better for you. You're letting your compassion sink in. You're opening to it. You're letting it swell and spread inside you. Know what it's like to be compassionate. Register what this experience is like. And then in the third step here, apply this wish and this feeling to the one being who wears your name tag.
and in the words, to yourself. You might imagine yourself kind of over there or visualize yourself over there or just simply um, know yourself from the inside out. Being aware of your own challenges, burdens, stresses, upsets, irritations, frustrations, worries. And in particular, prominent in the foreground of the mind, wish yourself well. Ouch, this hurts. I wish this didn't hurt. You can strengthen this feeling of compassion for yourself with soft thoughts like, may I not suffer? Or you can use your name. If I were to do it, it would be, Rick, may you not suffer? You could have specific soft thoughts if you want, like, may I find work? It's okay to mingle other wishes that are less focused on suffering per se, like, may I find love? May there be a healing in my family? May I be at peace with my teenager? May my own chemotherapy go well. It might be simply a sense inside of a kind of rippling waves of compassion or good wishes for yourself, sort of arising from some wellspring in your heart and then rippling out, filling your mind increasingly, filling your body with a quality of support. You could visualize yourself these days in particular situations that are challenging or upsetting. And seeing yourself in those situations, send good wishes. 
Perhaps send some wisdom, some support, some nurturance to that person over there who's dealing with that stuff or having those various emotional reactions arise. What could you send to the you over there in those challenging situations? can also be powerful, if you want, to imagine younger versions of yourself. Times previously in adulthood that were hard, maybe a tough job situation or a relationship breakup, maybe a loss. Could go back to young adulthood various transitions, misadventures, even childhood, high school, junior high, grade school, being a very little kid, even a baby. So I'll be quiet here for a few minutes, if you like, to bring to mind younger versions of yourself or younger layers in your own psyche who were bruised, hurt, upset, reactive, what have you, in pain, sending these younger versions, including the layers inside you, with warm-heartedness, good wishes, kindness, and compassion. It's natural if this is hard to sustain, just keep coming back to it. You could get a sense of that sweet little kid inside yourself, inside each one of us, that little boy or girl or 
whatever inside. Knowing how life was hard for that little kid. Innocent, sensitive. What kind of caring? What kind of wishing that she or he or whatever not suffer can you bring there? And then as we start to finish up, as a bit of a bonus, if it's real for you, can there be a sense of receiving this compassion, this lovingness, this sweetness, this sense of advocacy or being an ally or friend to yourself? Can there be a sense of receiving it? Because deep down in the emotional memory systems of the brain, they don't know what the source of an experience is. So there's been a lot of compassion heading your way in the last few minutes here. Can there be a receiving of it, including an opening into and a receiving into deeper, younger layers inside your own mind? As you explore this possibility of receiving compassion, sometimes there can be a kind of budging or shifting inside or or a kind of soothing or tranquilizing in a beautiful sense. A kind of peace can sometimes open and spread inside. And whatever sense of peace could be present here, there can be a receiving, a registering of that as well. Letting this peace land inside you.
in a moment, um, we'll, there'll be an opportunity for at least a few people to make a comment if you like or ask a question, and then we'll take a break. But before we do that, I wanted just to make a point here. You know, often, like I said, around that golden rule that ought to be a two-way street, we can see that others deserve compassion, but somehow it's harder to feel that it would be okay to receive it ourselves. And this is where Leonard Cohen, uh, also a long-term Zen practitioner, writes, you know, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. We're all cracked. We're all cracked. Um, I'm cracked. Um, so that's how the light gets in. All right. Uh, we're going to use a microphone. Uh, and just a reminder that you know other people will hear what you say, so be a little thoughtful about protecting your own privacy. To make an obvious point, this is not therapy. Uh, this is not group process. Uh, you know, take good care of yourself. Um, that said, would anybody like to offer a question or a comment about the practice we just did in particular? I think I've maybe alarmed you about speaking up. <laughs> it's okay. So, anybody? No? No? It's okay. Okay, great. A hand. Fine. Yeah, good. Thank you. And the microphone is sort of like an ice cream cone, except it doesn't fall, so you should hold it like this, and then it'll work well. Thank you. Oh, I have a bad habit of being a very critical thinker, so um, <laughs> I hate to be the first one. Um, but I was noticing with the languaging you were using, in neurolinguistic programming, they say that the mind doesn't hear the not. So when you say, may you not right, right, right. suffer, my mind's busy going, I better translate that into, may you thrive. Right. Right, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very natural point and, and one that I've, I've reflected on. I think on the whole, it's quite true. In other words, there is something to be said for establishing intentions that are positively languaged and positively framed. And I have some background in NLP, neuro-linguistic programming, and others as well have made that point. You know, you, you see it around affirmations. Instead of saying, may I not be sick, you know, may I be healthy, for example. Um, you know, may you not be such a jerk, rather than, or instead, you know, may you treat me nicely, or something like that. So there's a place for that. On the other hand, in the mind, and you can see what works for you, and feel very free to do a translation that works for you. Another example of adapting things to your own purposes, right? But in the mind, we also uh, tend to chunk things together. So not suffer. You know, for me, that's, that's a real chunk. That's meaningful. It doesn't just preoccupy with me suffering. It doesn't preoccupy me with suffering. Um, I know it as a chunk it is to not suffer, right? Uh, one in particular that uh, also another example is recognizing that I'm unthreatened. You know, again, threat is part of that unthreatened, but as a chunk, that really speaks to me. That kind of relaxes me when I recognize actually you know, no shark is chewing on my leg right now, that I'm actually all right right now. So to your point, I'm not at all disagreeing with it. I think it's generally often true. It is true that the nature of compassion, at least as it's defined, um, generally is, is a wish that a being not be in that pickle. And 
you know, there's a place for recognizing that you're in that pickle, and that's part of the whole package. Technically, kindness, which may be more where you're going here, is the wish that a being be happy, which doesn't presuppose uh, suffering, whereas compassion presupposes suffering. So all that said, I think it's an excellent point, and find what works for you when you do these kinds of practices. Okay, good. And it's also natural when you are engaging compassion practice or doing what research shows you can do, which is strengthen your compassion muscles. It's okay if other stuff gets mixed in there as well, like wishes that others be happy or oneself be happy, not merely not sick, as it were, or not in pain. Okay, great. Any other question or comment, including any maybe any bumps you ran into in doing it? Person toward the front, maybe bring the microphone. If you keep your hand up, she'll be able to continue to see you. Here he is, right here. Thanks a lot. They can hold it themselves. They'll do that. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, I was dealing, or I was um, visualizing myself in a few different ways, in a few different situations, and I found that when there was one time where I couldn't lay on my back, so I had to sit in the, fe- or I had to lay in the fetal position for about five days, and it might have something to do with psychology or like this, you know, fetal position or whatever. But I realized that. When I when that image hit my head or hit hit my mind, I was uh, it was really easy for me to be like, wow, that that was, um, you know, it's just kind of a vulnerable, yeah. vulnerable uh, way of looking at it. So it helped me out at least. Well, good. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate it. All right. Any other people? Compassion, self-compassion, or any issues with the beginning part of feeling cared about? That's a challenge for a lot of people sometimes. Great. Please. And Hi. you can stand or sit if you like. If you stand, it's a little easier for others to see you, but no obligation to stand. Great. Uh, in the context, uh, at, with nothing personal mentioned, in the context of bumps, uh, one of the thoughts that occurred to me during the meditation was the, the issue of schadenfreude, the, the, the thoughts of, you know, actually I'm kind of enjoying that person's suffering right now. And then, of course, you know, um, you know. She deserved it, and you know. Yeah. Um, and I wonder. I I haven't come across any writings on how to approach that, except to tell myself to stop it right now. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> Very good. Very good. So thank you. Um, so, um, I lived in Germany for a year, so I'm kind of I think allowed to say it. I like Germany a lot. You know, it's I may not be an accident that Schadenfreude is a German word. You know, but anyway, that said. Um, Research shows, to your point, that it, for most people, it's easier to have compassion for those that we think are innocent with regard to their suffering. You know, the drunk driver took them out when they were walking uh, you know, through the crosswalk when the light was green. But on the other hand, what if the drunk driver took them out and they were trying to run a red light, right? And then maybe there's not so much compassion. So it's important to appreciate that compassion is different from approval or agreement or judgment. It's independent of those things. We can disapprove of people and have compassion for them. We can sincerely wish that they not suffer. Now sometimes, I admit it, this side of enlightenment, our motivations around compassion are you know, not the loftiest. They might be on the order of, if you weren't suffering so much, you wouldn't be such a jerk. You know. So, but okay, you know, like it's an intermediate step. It kind of gets us across the river, floats your boat. Okay, you know, and then you move on from it as you 
need that intermediate step less and less. Um, but compassion is, is independent of approval, agreement. You don't have to waive your rights. Sometimes we think that if you're in a tussle or a tangle with another person, if you have compassion for them, um, that that means you're giving up your own position or your view or you're being a chump or a doormat. No, it's completely independent. So that's true in general. I think of compassion a lot as this kind of inner freedom. It's like a warm-hearted inner freedom. You know, you being a jerk, if you, let's say, or being unjust or whatever, I can still wish that you not suffer. A friend of mine was a monk uh, in Asia, Thailand, for a long time, and I asked him once if he met anybody who was enlightened and so on. And he said, well, first in that culture, it's not like you have a white light moment and you get your own TV show the next week. You know, they like watch you for a number of years. But, um, you know, there were people who were very, very far along, if not all the way, you know. And I said, what were they like? He said, well, first they had a lot of energy. They didn't just sit on their cushion eating bonbons or the monastic equivalent. And second, um, they were always the same. Well, what do you mean? He said, well... I mean, first, sometimes they were quiet, sometimes they were talkative, sometimes they were serious, sometimes they were funny, whatever. But they were always the same in this sense. If you were nice to them, they really loved you. If you were mean to them, they really loved you. <laughs> Their love was independent. They had themselves, that inner freedom, right? That kind of unconditionality growing inside themselves. They might, have, they might amidst that love be stern, they might be firm, they might call it the way they see it, they might need to call the lawyer for the temple, but they still loved the other person. There was an independence there. So I think that's a beautiful way, myself, to think about compassion as a kind of warm-hearted inner freedom, which then, with self-compassion, we can apply to ourselves. We can recognize even, yeah, darn, my foot hurts because I pounded it with a hammer, right? I'm the source of that one, let's say, and, ouch, I wish my foot were not hurting. And a key point, even though compassion is very legitimate and valid, if we can't do anything, we can have compassion for beings around the world or close to home. I wish you weren't, you know, in terrible pain, but I can't do a darn thing about it. No one else can either. I wish you weren't living in poverty there, and, you know, I can't make that different today. Uh, but my compassion is still real. On the other hand, research does show that as we, warm up the, as we warm up these circuits, these relational circuits in the brain, so too the motor circuits start lighting up in the brain, in many cases, particularly with training, and we get inclined to help. So we might recognize that we have messed up in some way, we are in some way the source of our own suffering, our compassion toward ourselves can still be authentic, ouch, I wish I, wish I wasn't so upset about this, I wish this pain would pass, okay? And warming up those motor circuits of action in terms of self-guidance, distinct from self-criticism, yeah, learn the lesson here, you know, uh, and act differently in the future and don't hit yourself in the foot with that hammer, for example, going forward. So I think separating out, decoupling the essence of compassion from these other things can support that kind of inner freedom. Maybe one more person and we'll take a break. How about the woman right there? Right there, white hair, great. Right there, great. Hand up. I really mean it. Think about your own compassion as your freedom. You know, the Buddha used the language of liberation. What is liberation? It's freedom. 
being liberated in some way. Okay, great. I'm not sure how to make clear what I'm struggling with. Um, there's an old line, if wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. So I have a problem with the word wishing. Yeah. And what I'm aware of in my own experience internally in the exercise that we did was that I couldn't wish things to be different, but I could feel the pain of what was going on. Yeah. That in feeling the pain, it felt like that was compassion, that the compassion was the actual experience of the pain itself, rather than saying, I wish it were different. Right. Does it make any sense? Yes, and to me, you're, my take on that, by the way, my version of that is, if wishes were oysters, we'd all be wearing pearls, you know, <laughs> but anyway. You're, it's a really huge thing you're getting at, I think, you know, which is, um, to put it a certain way, especially in the Buddhist context that we're in here, the distinction that the Buddha drew between what he, in the language of Pali, tanha, which is craving, okay, problematic wishing or desiring or attachment or clinging or resisting the unpleasant or chasing in a driven way the pleasant, etc., etc. That's problematic. But he also acknowledged, again in the language of early Buddhism, Pali, chanda, it's a very different word, which is a wholesome desire. When we're thirsty, it's wholesome to wish for water. If others are thirsty, it's wholesome to wish that they get water. Um, I should have mentioned this. You might have noticed there's a, you know, kind of a... I've had some work done recently. Uh, I had a melanoma surface on my skin. Inside too, I'm okay, thank you, modern medicine. Pulled out with all this sort of stuff. You know, if it's, it's wholesome for our, my doctors who spotted that to wish that I get the treatment that would take it out of me. I tell you, it felt very wholesome for me to get that kind of good treatment. And my wife, my wife and my kids wished me well too. So it's important to appreciate also, if you think of the Noble Eightfold Path, the second element typically listed is wise intention, which is a kind of wishing. So I think it's okay to, to have wholesome desires of various kinds for social justice, for the rule of law, for children to be fed, you know, it's okay. It really is okay. And I think in my two cents here, a certain amount of, you know, muddledness has slipped into the world of spirituality in some quarters about ruling out all wishes or wants as if they're all categorically problematic, you know. The trick is to distinguish between wholesome and unwholesome wishes, and also the trick is to pursue wholesome ends in wholesome ways with a real clarity about letting go along the way. You know, it's natural for desires to arise, wholesome and unwholesome. That's not so much the problem. The problem is when we cling to those desires or identify with them. Yeah. So um, anyway, that's for me has been a very useful distinction to make, drawing on the teaching of the Buddha between tanha and chanda, uh, between you know, drivenness and craving on the one hand, and wholesome, beneficial intentions, inclinations, longings, you know, the longing to fulfill your potential, to actualize it. I think that's a wholesome desire. 
And the trick then, especially in this householder life, you know, in which the greatest minds of our generation are devising ever more brilliant ways to make us want more, my precious, you know, more, more, more. You know, how do we play with that in a way in which we open our heart increasingly to be given over to wholesome, beneficial, kind-hearted desires without tipping into wanting in relationship to them. And one of the interesting things about that, which goes to a theme that will run throughout the day, this will be my final thought before we take a break, is that it's actually very interesting that as we act upon our wholesome desires to be loved by others, to be prized by others, to be praised, to be valued, to be included, to be special, right? Desires that can get a bad name in spiritual circles. As we act upon those desires in skillful ways, and as we especially internalize the experience again and again and again of feeling cared about in one way or another, as we do that, we gradually fill ourselves up inside and we become less and less inclined to reach out for supplies outside ourselves. In a sense, cultivation, wholesome cultivation over time, including the cultivation of feeling loved and, and seen and liked and appreciated, valued, included, and so forth, as we internalize that, as we increasingly cultivate that, so it's in our bones increasingly and less and less contingent upon or dependent upon external provision of those kind of supplies, right? As we cultivate that inside ourselves, we become increasingly free and we carry our sense of feeling loved enough and liked enough and valued enough inside ourselves already, no matter what's happening outside us. So in a sense, cultivation undoes craving has to be understood kind of wisely and carefully and we don't it's easy to slip and tip into some kind of drivenness around internalizing these healthy social supplies but if we have our eyes wide open i think this is a beautiful path you know to gradually internalize feeling loved so we're increasingly loving ourselves it's a happy path okay how about we have a happy break for 20 minutes? Please come back on time at 20 after 11. See you then. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.